0: On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, uh, there are apparently plans being made, hopefully that don't have to be used, but plans in case universities and colleges cannot open in the fall, plans that would allow students to do school from off site. We're gonna talk to the Dean of Students at McMaster about what they are doing and how this could possibly work and how much students would lose from the experience if they had to do that. We're also gonna chat about the local real estate situation, numbers way down, way down, predictably, I would say, but but there is a glimmer of good news in the middle of it all, and we're going to chat about music. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, well, the discussion always is who has been snubbed. We're going to talk about 80s music, one of everyone's favorite topics, because everyone either loves 80s music. Or hates 80s music and there are a number of people who were big time players in the 80s in the music scene who are not in the rock and roll hall of fame who has been snubbed we will talk about that with alan cross stick around
1: today on the scott radley show on 900 chml
0: we know these are tough times and we know that there's a lot of challenges that are facing a lot of different people from the administration administrative side of places to organizers to everyday people well this story this topic is right in that wheelhouse because there was a story in the toronto stuff the headline colleges and universities quietly preparing to take all classes online this fall amid COVID 19. that would be i would think very challenging for universities and colleges because that's not how they are designed but it would also be really tough i would think for students especially first-year students who are coming into university. Uh, Sean Van Koonen is the Associate Vice President of Students and Learning and the Dean of Students at McMaster. He joins us now. Sean, how are you today?
2: I'm good. Thanks, uh, Scott, for having me on.
0: No, thank you for joining me. Um, This is so far out of the hands of McMaster or any other college or university. This is certainly not anyone's choice. But I can't think of anything that would take away from the student experience, especially first year students or transferring students more than not being able to be on campus and not being able to move in and not being able to do all the things can you or, or am I overstating it?
2: Well, certainly, you know, the the on-campus experience is a, is a huge part of the student experience. Um, so it will, uh, if we are in a worst case scenario, it will have an impact. Um, and as you've mentioned, uh, Virtually all universities, I think, are are at least preparing for worst-case scenarios, where uh, in the in the academic side of things, uh, uh, courses would be delivered, uh, would be prepared to deliver them all online if we need to in the fall. Mm-hmm. And as far as the student life, you mentioned moving into residence and those types of things. When you it, social connection connections are, are vitally important, especially for first-year students and uh so actually once the pandemic hit uh we started immediately working on how we would connect students if it it came to a worst case scenario and and students were unable to attend campus how would we connect them virtually how would we mimic some of the aspects of say living Mm -hmm. in residence uh so we've actually got a program that we're going to be launching this week um that Almost from the moment a student accepts their offer um, by June 1st, we're going to be connecting them with other students, uh, with upper year mentors, and with professional staff. The program's called Archway. And the goal is really to provide those social connections. Now, does it replace fully face to face? Maybe nothing does, but at least this will go uh, some of the way to making them feel a part of the McMaster community no matter where they're studying from
0: is this something that you have heard other universities do or that you've talked to other universities about or is this something you guys have all just come up with to try and create that experience
2: well um you know unless the other universities could be holding this close to their chest if they are uh you know (laughs) okay so you know um in conversation with other universities i haven't heard anything quite like this yet although i'm i'm i'd be surprised if there isn't some variation of it i'm not sure uh, I haven't heard anything where they're contemplating the, the size and the scale this were our, our objective and, and right now our target is roughly we bring in roughly 6000 first year students a year. And so we this program is designed to connect every single one of those 6000 students with an upper year student uh, and uh, headed by some professional uh, student life staff. Who, who will oversee our, our upper year mentors and help them provide guidance? Because universities are complex places for anyone to, to navigate sometimes, and especially first year students. So part of the goal is, you know, we want those first year students to feel like they belong and feel like they have someone they can go to to help them navigate the place, um, whether they're in person or whether they're uh, whether they're uh, remote.
0: I, it's a very cool thing, and I had no idea when I brought you on about this. Um, is this something that has completely come together since this started or was something like this as a fallback plan, as an emergency contingent in the event of some horrible thing already on the books? Like, have you guys all created this no. since this started?
2: Yeah, no, it, it really, when, when the pandemic hit, it just occurred to me that we have, so we have a great, uh, history of creating community at Mac and it, you know, in the normal times it would be face to face. And I thought, we need, to, we need to somehow take some of those principles, and especially if you picture what happens in residence uh, where you've got um, an upper-year student who is a what we call community advisor in some other universities. It's called a DAWN. Um, uh, helping to shepherd, you know, uh, and in, in, in our case, it's roughly 30 first-year students. Help mentor them. Um, and we have professional full-time residence life staff as well who... Uh, manage that residence life operation. So I was, I thought, why don't let's let's bring this into the virtual world and see what we can do. Let's let's figure out the logistics. Um, and it's going to be really important to do that from the moment, almost the moment they accept their offer in June, because I think there could be a lot of things that evolve over the summer, and we want to make sure if a student accepts their offer by June 1st that they're going to want to enroll on September 1st because there could be things that happen in, in July and August that that make them wonder if that's still the right way to go mm. and then through the first two three four months and on through the first year we want to make sure that um if there is some disruption and we don't know what's going to happen and, and many experts are predicting a second wave of this thing to come through uh in the fall we want to make sure there's that continuity and that consistency of support that the students are going to have throughout their entire first year you're listening to the scott radley show
1: podcast on 900 chml
0: John, just before the break, you were saying that one of the things you're trying to do is make sure students still want to enroll, because anything anything could happen over the summer. We really don't know what that would be. Um, You're not an admissions guy per se, but campus life certainly seems to be a significant factor, am I wrong, in helping students decide what universities they want to choose? So removing that from the equation removes, I don't know, does it remove part of McMaster's advantage? to lure students
2: or recruit students? Uh, yeah, well, actually, admissions falls um, uh, under my portfolio as well. Oh, does it? OK. So we've had okay. a lot of discussion around, uh, uh, certainly, recruitment and admissions. And, and there's no doubt that one of the selling points for McMaster is our campus. Uh, we know that when first year or when prospective students come to campus, they they just they feel at home for a lot of them. They love the campus. And, uh, and so certainly, um, you know, not being able to be on campus is, is, uh, something we would, uh, not prefer had happened, but, um, you know, this, this will pass eventually. This is not, um, this is not something where students will not set foot on campus ever. They're going to be a purely online degree, uh, student. Um, is it ideal if they are not on campus for a period of time? Uh, no. Uh, uh we are also trying to give students a sense for campus. If they didn't have a chance to get here uh, before the pandemic hit, uh, we're running virtual tours. There's a, a bunch of things we're doing throughout the month of May leading up to the June 1st uh, confirmation deadline where students, uh, there's webinars. Students can find out about a number of different topics uh, and the tours will give them. It's, it's not the same as being there, um, but it'll give them a sense for what campus is all about. And we're hopeful that you know progress will be made. Kansas uh, is doing a better job than, I'll well, say, our neighbors to the south on on dealing with this pandemic. And so uh, this is not th- th- this will pass eventually, and students will be able to enjoy campus life. It may be altered uh, in some way. We'll have to see, and we take our guidance from public health on that. Um, but but students will be able to have campus life at some point.
0: I, I'm, I'm very impressed with the, the, as I say, the program you just explained that, that came out of the blue that you guys have put together very quickly. Um, that said, I cannot help but think that if all of a sudden, let's say it's November or December or January, that they get the all clear and suddenly if, if, and we don't know this yet, but if colleges and universities were closed in the fall, if say January, everybody is allowed to come on board, it sounds like it could be somewhat chaotic, um, would that be the next step then after you've got this social connection thing built to say, okay, what happens when we do throw open the doors to make sure this is not a mess?
2: Um, you know, I think there's a number of different scenarios that could play out. And um, we are we're actively planning. We're probably, you know, it feels like we're doing about five years worth of work in, in, in five months if you <laughs> go back to March and leading up to September. And, and a lot of that involves trying to plan for um, every almost every conceivable scenario. Um, and so if if we were uh, online or predominantly online in the fall and if, if we were able to come back in January, um, I, the biggest challenge may be uh, that I, I think we're not going to be back in January uh, just as it was last year. There's going to be a bunch of uh, safety and health measures that we would need to put in place. And so actually this morning we had a call On that around what does what what exactly would that look like how do we need to prepare uh, to enable students to to, and and, uh, all community members to be on campus in a safe manner so I don't think that the actual you know the scheduling of classes the running of classes um, the running of residences I mean the the main logistical challenges are around putting in place whatever additional health and safety measures uh, Mm -hmm. we need to have And, and so I hope you know our scenario planning is going to be as thorough and as good as it possibly can be. Inevitably, there are going to be things that, that are going to come up that we just hadn't dealt with. But I think if we're, if we're thoughtful now, we're going to be able to deal with most of what, what we're going to be confronted with uh, as the year goes on.
0: Sean, one more thing, and that is uh, McMaster has a fantastic reputation uh, for a lot of reasons, but one of them is as a medical school, as a science school, uh, clearly doing labs is more difficult when you are at home. Um, you know, a lot of the stuff that you, that, and I've not been through medical school. You may or may not believe that, but it's true. I, I've not been, I'm not yeah. a doctor. Um, yeah. But I imagine that trying to learn a lot of the stuff that medical students would have to learn would be incredibly difficult if you can't be hands-on. How do you, how do you deal with people who are coming into the school with that? And, and again, I know the medical, well, maybe the medical school's under you too. I don't know, but it's an admission thing. How do you convince people that they want to do that now if if some of the things you would think would be really key can't be done
2: yeah and i'm you know i i'm not a doctor either i didn't go to medical school and medical school is not uh part of my portfolio i'm gonna have to uh i think you're probably gonna have to get someone else on that call to answer that intelligently because i i just i don't have a, a great answer for that i know that the medical school is actively working on how they're gonna um how the different scenarios that might play out in the fall so that that this, so that the students can be properly trained um, uh, through their time at Mac.
0: It's a uh, it's an incredibly challenging thing and uh, I don't envy you with the amount of work that uh, you're facing right now to try and figure this out. Hopefully it's the best case scenario and they say everyone's good to come in in the fall and uh, all this work was for naught, but um, which I, I mean, I suppose a lot of work for naught in this case would be a good thing, but um, well, Sean Van Kunen, yeah, well, sorry, go ahead. <clears throat>
2: I was just gonna say I think some of the work, even if we have a best case scenario, there's gonna be things that we learn through this planning that, that we can use regardless of, you know, uh, of what happens in the fall, if we're able to go back full steam ahead. There's there are things that we're learning and, and considering and ideas that are coming out, innovations that I think are gonna be useful for the future no matter what.
0: Sean Van Koonen, associate VP of Students and Learning and the Dean of Students at Mac. Thanks for doing this. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Scott you're listening to the scott radley show podcast
1: on 900 chml
0: my next guest now we i generally have him on two three maybe four times a year and we talk about the real estate market which i think every single time that he's been on i think i could be wrong but i believe every single time i've had him on what we end up talking about inevitably is the fact that Sales are through the roof. Numbers are through the roof. Prices are through the roof. This is an upward, unstoppable express train straight towards the sky that you just in the Hamilton, Burlington, down starting towards Niagara market, you just for months, for years now, you it's been unstoppable. Well, well, you know. This COVID thing uh, has a way of affecting everything. And the numbers came out this week for real estate in the greater Hamilton area. And uh, I'm guessing that if you are an agent or if you're someone trying to sell your house, this is not exactly ideal news. A numbers down 63% year over year for the month of April, 63%. That is, so we're talking basically two-thirds fewer sales this April compared to last April. Uh, the man I'm talking about, of course, is Rob Golfie, whose name you know, who you see his signs up everywhere. He joins me now. Rob, how are you today?
3: Good, Scott. How, Scott, how are you doing?
0: Uh, well, listen, I, I'm guessing I'm probably doing better than most real estate agents these <laughs> days. This is uh, It's a little, the numbers anyway are a little bleak.
3: They, they are bleak but it, we're we're starting to see some some good numbers starting the first week of april but yeah you're right um i mean the first week of may um but you're right um the the, the numbers are down in april uh 63 to 65 percent um everybody um realtors and you know people that have their houses up for sale um it, it did definitely uh make a big impact uh in the uh, in the market um but the, but the sales prices though uh the average sale price is is hanging in there i mean it's down just slightly but not that much so for compared to what is going on in the world house prices are still you know hanging in there
0: well let's start with the numbers of sales because we'll get the bad news out of the way first the sale price is something that we can still cling to so we'll hold on to that till the end so we can leave feeling not terrible um because the, the 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 number of properties that are selling right now, this, when, when this is going on, this is entirely predictable, is it not? I mean, there's no agent out there who honestly thought that there would be no impact.
3: Oh, a- a- absolutely. I-, I mean, I remember in the uh, middle of March, uh, just before they were doing, uh, they were announcing that, uh, that they are going to shut everything down. That was a scary moment that I felt in my life. I never had that feeling. And uh, definitely, I knew that was going to make a major impact in in the sales for sure.
0: Because right now, I mean, I don't even know how you sell a house because you can't. uh, Showing it would be very tricky because I'm guessing there's some people who, depending how desperate they are to sell, they don't probably want people coming in and bringing whatever into the house. You can't really do open houses. Um, there, there's a lot of things that I would think for agents that would be standard operating procedure that are now out the window.
3: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We, ha- we definitely had to change how we operate. Um, we, we, now we've implemented every single one of our listings now has a 3D virtual tour. So basically uh, what that is, it's just like you going onto Google Maps. You know how you can gauge up and down the streets and you can yeah. zoom in on the house. Well, we have that inside the house now. You can go up the stairs, down the stairs. You can check the baseboards, thing, the light fixtures. It, basically, you're in the house, and, and uh, we're finding that we're getting a lot of activity of people looking uh, on mm. our virtual uh, tours on that, we, uh, and it's and it's and it's doing really well. And making decisions um, more uh, before they actually want to do a walk through the house. And we've sold uh, a few houses uh, without even people walking into the house. So really, so, and, and really, technology is actually uh has has been there but now it's definitely changed the way we do business
0: because i can certainly and believe me i I, there are nights when i'm lying in bed and i'm bored and i can't sleep and i'll turn on i'll go to realtor.ca and just poke around and see what the market offers and i've seen some of those 3d tours the thing is though if you're going to pay four five six seven whatever hundred thousand dollars if you're going to buy a house which is i think for most people by far the biggest purchase. I would be horribly uncomfortable doing it with just the video. I would say, I, I don't know, maybe I'm alone in this, maybe I'm not. I still would feel a need to see it in person. I, I'm kind of surprised there are people who would just buy it based on the video. You're not alone because I, w- I would be the
3: same as you. Uh, but but these millennials, they kind of, uh, they're a different breed of people and uh, they grew <laughs> up uh, not wanting to t- talk to people in person. But, but they do eventually do go through the house, some of them prior to firming up a deal and and a lot and and those deals do go through they they firm up and they say hey this is exactly what I was looking for and they saw everything online and uh and they're and they're happy with it but yeah you're right I'm the type of guy that would like to touch and feel and see exactly you know what uh and and be inside the house before I would actually consider putting an offer on a house for sure.
0: Rob, is that a new condition? I mean, conditions previously, like common ones, have been on a home inspection or on financing or on sale of your property. Are we seeing any conditions now on me being able to see the place in person?
3: Absolutely. Which is yeah. weird, but really? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's new conditions that were typed up now that uh, people look, for. Look, uh, we, we put in their conditional upon doing final uh, or final walkthrough prior to removing any uh, condition <clears throat> of, uh, viewing, of viewing the property. Uh, so that so because it it is difficult you know especially if it's a rental sometimes or people don't they have children and uh, they don't really want an abundance of people going through so uh, they want serious people that are looking at the house and if they put an offer in prior to uh, going in then they have no problems leaving the house letting these people go in and view the property and hopefully they firm up on the deal and then everything is 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 all good but um yeah, every, you know, I mean, we're we're all worried about, you know, somebody bringing in COVID to, uh, you know. Exactly. To one house, to the house. So so we're being very careful. We're making sure everybody sanitizes their hands, wears gloves, and sometimes masks. Uh, we tell the homeowners to leave all the doors, closet doors open, all lights on, so they don't have to touch any light switches or open any closet doors or any doors in the house.
1: You're listening to The Scott Radley Show
3: podcast
1: on 900CHML.
0: Rob, before we get to the numbers, and again, the numbers are good, and I want to leave with some sort of sense of hope out of this, but if you are a seller right now, how do you possibly get any traction? First of all, people aren't leaving their homes, and as I say, you and I are probably, I think, in the majority, who would say, I want to see a house before I buy it. How do you possibly get noticed and move your house right now?
3: Well, you you definitely need a a, a 3D virtual tour in your house, Um, and then plenty of photographs. And uh, and pricing it uh, right, bang on right. Um, uh, because you know, even though there's a little bit of a shortage of houses on the market, but there's also less buyers. So if you put all that into place, you will do well on your price. You will do well. But you definitely need a full, like all guns blazing. You need you need all the the photography, the full service, the online, the social media. You need everything to get your house noticed, uh, especially with this COVID thing that's going on.
0: Are we seeing anything? Okay, let me back up for a second here. For years, we've been hearing about people wanting to be downtown, wanting to be in urban area, denser condos, all that kind of thing. And we've seen some of that in Hamilton. We've seen people buying places downtown. Now that we have this thing going on, are we seeing any sign that people are saying, you know what, I actually think I may want to buy in the suburbs where I have some room and where I'm not going to be in a small area that if something like this ever happens again, I can have some space to move. Is that changing or is that... Just something that's going to blow over and doesn't affect the market. Well, what, what, what's happened with
3: this COVID, I think it's advanced people three years in advance of what they want to do. So what people were thinking of doing in three to five years from now, they're probably going to do it now within the next six to 12 months. Uh, right now, we're finding people are looking for houses with pools because they're, they're afraid that they may be stuck at home. Uh, all summer and they would love to have a pool to enjoy in the backyard while they're at home in quarantine. And uh, so houses, houses with pools are definitely in big demand right now. Um, there's um, um, and people are looking for houses with more space and, and people, and some people are downsizing, but uh, there's a lot of changes happening, but we found it in, in, in May right now uh, the first week of May um, that it's funny though, the uh, appointments have, are up. And, and also sales are up already for the month of May. And and I knew that would happen in May because people are they've been sitting around and, and, and waiting and waiting. And now they're getting fed up and everybody's getting anxious and irritated. So now people are, are, are making the move what they want to do. And it, and, I, and I feel that uh, that's happening right now as we speak.
0: Well, and perhaps also um, you now have a clarified for a lot of people who may or may not be suffering financially. And so. Um, you know, we're now a month and a half or two into this. That if you have still got your job and are still doing okay and good for you, if you are, that maybe those people are now feeling a little more assured that they can spend the money on a house. That their job is probably not as job is not as likely to disappear.
3: Oh, absolutely, yeah, uh, and, I, and 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 I think there will always be a shortage of homes right now. Um, this year, it was starting out to be a, a, another record uh, year, just like it was in 2017, where. Uh, housing prices were just going up like crazy and then and then also which just went off in the middle of march but uh but now it because there is a shortage of homes, housing prices are staying stable and they're sticking around i mean they've got they've come down just a slight little bit uh but not not enough to make a a a a significant difference in 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 people's you know equity. Uh, but yeah, no, I think, uh, you know, uh, how, people are still moving and they're, people are upsizing, downsizing and and things are still going along. And uh, and I don't think, uh, I think, you know, there's I think you'll do well if you sell, if you price it right.
0: Now, you mentioned the prices. Uh, there is some good news here, I suppose. And that is now they're down a little bit from last month. But year over year, house prices are actually up another 4.3%. I'm stunned by this, Rob, only because... If you have houses that are not selling, which is the case, they're down 63%, you would think people might be more desperate to move and would drop their prices. Clearly, they're not doing that. And clearly, clearly, people who are buying are willing to pay.
3: They, they are, yeah. Like, I mean, its they have a need and everybody needs a roof over their head, Scott. And uh, it just, uh, yeah, like it's its like, it's part of something that we all need. And the economy, you know, uh, is good. And, and if we look at, at the past, recessions in history, housing prices never went down in in recessions that much, except a little bit in the early 90s. But besides that, when we go back up to 1960, um, housing prices, even when there were interest rates are 18 to 20 percent in the early 80s, um, they they maintain prices still maintain strong. So um, and I and I feel that it, it still will be like that now. Um, and, uh, I mean, we still got, a, a, you know, a lot of months ahead of us to figure out where we're going and how this is doing. But I, I, I feel solid that housing prices will stay uh, strong and, uh, and it, it, there'll be less home selling, but they'll, they'll be strong.
0: Rob Golfie, you see signs everywhere. Appreciate you doing this. Thanks for the time. Thank you for having me on, Scott. Have a great night. You're
1: listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: In Cleveland, you know, Cleveland is the home of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And the one thing about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is that it leads inevitably and always to great debates. Two debates primarily. One of them is, is it really still the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame when you have folk and country and rap and all other varieties of music in there? You can have that debate among yourself later. But the other debate that always comes up is who is being left out, who has been snubbed, who has been screwed over by the voters. For the longest time, it was rushed. We got that one fixed, thankfully. But now Cleveland.com, which is the uh, it's a local news outlet in Cleveland, I believe it's the online arm of the Cleveland Plain Dealer, the newspaper, has come out with its list, and it's got an algorithm that it's built, its list of the 80s performers, not 80 performers, those from the 80s, who have been overlooked and snubbed. And if we're gonna talk about this kind of thing, there is nobody else who can have this discussion other than our friend Alan Cross, uh, author of a Journal of Musical Things, music historian, the guy you turn to whenever you need to talk about music. He joins us now. Alan, how are you doing? Okay, where are we going with this? I can't wait. I love a good fight. (laughs) Well, okay, first of all, before we dive down into the fight, I, I should have said, I suppose there's a third debate that could be had, and that is, in your mind, were the 1980s a great decade for music or a horror show for music? Because there are two very different sides of this argument that people will take.
4: Yeah, it depends on what kind of music you were into. Uh, if you were into things like hard rock and hair metal, it was it was the decade. If you were into... uh. Pop music, it wasn't that great until we get to the latter part of the decade. If you're into alternative music, well, it didn't really exist. It was very, very much underground. Nobody really knew much about it until we get to the end of the decade. So it was a mixed bag. Uh, there were people who still loved to go to retro '80s nights and and dance to all those songs that were, um, you know, kind of uh, riding that edge between pop and alternative, but. Uh, It wasn't one of my favorite decades. Let's
0: put it that way. See, I've always long believed that the giant shoulder pads in the suits that people were wearing added something acoustically to the sound that they produced. Well, it wasn't a good good addition. It
4: it, it, (laughs) It was a new addition. there, There is so much. If you go back to the 80s and you listen to the music, a lot of it sounds extremely dated because everybody was getting into this whole idea of synthesizers and samplers and drum machines, and they were all using the same sound. So if you listen to a lot of keyboard-based, synth-based music, they were all using the same presets on a keyboard called a Yamaha DX7. Um, The DX7 has a setting on it that gave us the theme song to Seinfeld and all the, uh, the interstitial music on Seinfeld. That's not a bass guitar. That's a Yamaha DX7. And, you know, there was way too much Phil Collins in the 1980s. There was <laughs> way too many synthesized drums in the 1980s. And you listen to a lot of these songs and they sound like, oh, I can. You know, It's like watching a movie from 1992
0: and somebody pulls out a cell phone and you go, oh, okay. You just dated everything. Yeah, it's the size of a brick. Yeah, and only the guys who were supposed to be the yuppies or the really obnoxious uh, business people had them. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, the drums. It's not just the synthesizer, but also those. So what do you even call them now? The electronic drums, the uh, the small pads that uh, that seemed like they were really cool at the time, but we've yeah, thankfully gotten were, rid they of.
4: Called, they were called Syn drums. There was a company called Lind drums. There was a company called Simmons, um, and and you know they had a particular sound, and and for a time. You know, things were very futuristic. This is where music is going. This is how we're going to tame and control sound. And now you go back and listen to this and go, nah, it is really of an era, which is odd because when you go back to the 70s or even some parts of the 1960s, and that music sounds more contemporary, more in line with what's going on today than a lot of the music that we got from the 1980s.
0: All right, just before we dive into who has been snubbed or not snubbed from the 80s, let me ask you this, because you just mentioned the decades. How is it that we can identify sounds or songs and the way songs sound by a decade? Because it just—it seems so weird that there would be such a distinction, but wrapped up in such a specific period of time. It's not like a song was... A sound was from the mid 50s through the late 60s like it seems like there is a sound that is locked in the 50s there is a sound that is locked in the 60s how does that work because it seems very weird to me that it's so perfectly encapsulated uh, that way a lot of it is technology
4: driven back in the 1950s you had maybe you know a lot of the stuff was recorded in mono in, in, in primitive studios or certainly primitive by our standards in the 1960s, you began with uh, two-track and three-track and then four-track. And by the time you get to the end of the 1960s, some studios were equipped with eight tracks, which was unbelievably advanced. And when you have the extra technology, the extra tracks, the extra opportunity to make new sounds, uh, musicians are going to experiment with it. So as technology evolves, so does the sound of the the music. Now, we can go all the way back to the early 1900s when we didn't have microphones and uh, everybody had to line up around a big acoustic horn that funneled sound into uh, a a diaphragm, which jiggled a little stylus, which cut something right into a, a, a master recording. Uh, then the microphone comes along in the, in the middle nineteen twenties, and all of a sudden you can get up close and personal, and softly singing and crooning into into the, mu- into, the uh, into the mic, which created a completely different sound for the late nineteen twenties and all through the nineteen thirties. We get guys like Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra and so on. Um, if we go to the nineteen seventies, music got a chance to be more complicated uh, because it could. We had 16 track, 24 track, all kinds of um, external outboard effects that could be applied to music, and that went really crazy in the 1980s. Synthesizers became more powerful, easier to use, and cheaper. We began to see things like a programmable drum machines, like the Roland 808. Uh, we began to see keyboards. I mentioned the Yamaha DX7, but there were tons of other manufacturers. There was Roland. There was um, uh, trying to think of some others. Uh, sequential Circuits, uh, Oberheim, Moog, and, and, and many, many others. And each one of them had a very distinct sort of you know futuristic sound, which was what everybody was going for. Then we have something called the Synclivir and the Fairlight, which were early sampling devices. And that changed the sound of music. And if you want to know what uh, that did, just go back and listen to the first Frankie Goes to Hollywood album, Welcome to the Pleasure Dome. You know, that was all done on a Fairlight, which was super, super high tech for the time. And it has a very distinct sound. Uh, That, you know, and, and when a certain sound, a certain style of production, Become successful. Well, that you know creates all kinds of uh, of imitators. So for a while, everybody was into the tightly processed, very carefully uh, produced, uh, in some cases, extremely synthesized sound, which was okay for a while. But then um, we kind of got tired of it because it didn't seem well the, real. Well, it didn't seem real. And then we get to, to Generation X in the early 1990s, and they threw off the chains of technology and wanted something more raw and real and back to basics and, uh, in their eyes, authentic. And that's where you know grunge and punk and, and some of the other uh, styles of music come, come into, in, into play. Um, so it, it's every, every decade or at least every time we have... Uh, a change in technology we have a change in sound and if it's successful people will jump all over I'll give you one more example so Cher sure. comes out late 1999 with a song called Believe using this yeah with the, the uh, room thing in it yes I know is, I think yeah. It, yeah so that's auto-tune and they it was a mistake they turned up the auto-tune settings way too high and you get that weird robotic sort of sound through the vocals and then from then on auto everybody had to do auto-tune and uh, it, it became a big, big thing for a long, long
0: time until people said enough. Let's try something else. Well, let's go to this because here, so Cleveland.com, again, home of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, they have what they call their Rock Hall Index System. Now, it's an algorithm. I I don't know all the things they've plugged in, but they've come up with their list of the groups in order that they believe have been, Snubbed by the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, perhaps. Now, interestingly, the groups that didn't make their top lists uh, Tina Turner, now she's in um, not as a solo artist, but she's in with Ike and Tina Turner, I believe. Uh, Phil Collins, you mentioned Phil Collins, he's not in. Uh, Motley Crue, Cyndi Lauper, Pat Benatar didn't make the cut. But among those who did, tell me if these people, these bands, should or should not receive consideration to be in the. Rock through a bunch. And I'll skip a few. Judas Priest. If you are, if you talk
4: to any metal person, they will stand on the highest mountain and scream their frustration that Judas Priest is not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I would suggest that they are correct. If you are um, into any kind of melodic metal you have to go back to what judas priest did in the early uh, in the late 70s and and early 80s
0: uh if Def leppard can be in the rock and roll hall of fame so judas priest and correct me if i'm wrong but i mean when you go back and look at live aid live aid was really in large measure the greatest of the bands of that era judas priest played live aid right I think so. They did. I'm pretty sure they did. I'm almost positive they did. So, I mean, so they were a big deal even back then. All right. In excess.
4: Yeah, I can't understand why they're not there already. They were uh, a tremendously successful band through the 1980s and the very early part of the 1990s. Michael Hutchins was one of the great rock and roll frontmen of all time. Um, they had a, a sound and a an influence that can be felt even today. So, yeah, there should be uh, they should be on the, on the list.
0: I, I've always wondered if they don't get m- as much credit as they might otherwise, because if I recall correctly, Michael Hutchin's passing was not exactly um uh, it, it was a little awkward, shall we say? Uh, yeah, I'll um, we'll call it that. but but that shouldn't you know that that shouldn't uh, affect
4: anything. I, see Part of the issue here is, is that the Rocker Hall of Fame has uh, an old boys club, about 900 people, and there's a lot of politicking and arm twisting and nudge, nudge, wink, winking that goes along. And the only way that you've been on the ballot is if you have people in your corner lobbying for you to be on the ballot. And I guess Inexcess just doesn't have those kind of friends.
0: All right, here's one that, now I know he's in with his group, but as a solo artist, I'm very surprised, quite honestly, this guy is not in Sting. He's in with the police, but I'm shocked that Sting is not in as a solo artist, when you consider Ringo Starr is in as a solo artist. Yeah, but Ringo Starr is a Beatle and Sting isn't. Well, and and Ringo Starr clearly went in with the Beatles as well, but then they put him in as a solo artist, and I can't say that Ringo Starr's solo career was as good as Sting's.
4: Well, yeah, you know, you can make that argument. Again, I, I think I think Sting has just annoyed people with his <laughs> with, with his image and arrogance, and he just doesn't have a lot of friends who are willing to 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 you know, get behind him. Or he may have quietly somewhere along the line let it be known, and say, nope, I'm not interested. I don't believe in
0: institutions like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Don't even ask. Huh. All right. Uh, okay. So we talked about Judas Priest. What about Motorhead?
4: Oh, yes. The fact that Motorhead is not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is a huge travesty. As a matter of fact, this coming Friday has been declared Motorhead Day because it will be 40 years ago on Friday that their great thrash metal album, Ace of Space Spades, Spades, was released. So Friday has been declared the loudest day of the year uh, in honor of <laughs> the <of Motorhead>. so, <laughs> Absolutely. I'm a. I'm a giant Motorhead fan, and I think that uh, the fact that there, it, there's no Motorhead, no Metallica. It's that
0: simple. No, no. Well, Metallica, I mean, I suppose you can make the argument they're still going, although a lot of bands that are still going have been in there as well. So, so uh, here's another only, one that... Go ahead. The
4: only, thing, the only thing that you have to do is you can still be going. You just have to have uh, released your
0: first music 25 years ago. So yeah. uh, that that's the only criteria. This one, again, uh, whether or not they should be in, and I'll leave that to you to decide, Uh, I thought for sure they would be in, just because I don't know there's too many bands that are more reflective and synonymous with the 80s and these guys. Duran Duran. They're not
4: in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame?
0: Apparently not. Apparently not. They are number 15 on the all-snub list by Cleveland.com. Holy crap. Is that really that's insane that is absolutely insane
4: they epitomized the 1980s i mean you couldn't turn on a video channel without seeing duran Duran. at one point we were calling them the fab five because people were worried that they were going to become uh you know as big as the beatles or or beyond i can't wow yeah you know i'm
0: I'm just checking here on my computer you're right they are not in the rock and roll office wow that, that again, that to me, they they seemed to have, it was the style, it was the sound, it was the synth. I mean, if you're talking about the 80s and you had one song to play that would make people think of the 80s, you could probably do it with a Duran Duran song. Oh, yeah, Hungry Like a Wolf, Rio, something like that. Anything um, like that.
4: Yeah, I'm just checking. You know, they were nominated in 2015, 2016, which are the first two years of eligibility. Um, they didn't make the final cut those years. And they have been missed out on being nominated for the last number of years. I mean, when you think about Duran Duran, I mean, the video, you know, the groundbreaking videos, yes. uh, the style and fashion, what they did for, for uh, MTV, uh, you know, they paved the way for, for so many different types of music that followed. I mean, you, you don't have Duran Duran. You might not have Nine Inch Nails.
0: Well, I would think there'd be a lot that you wouldn't have. I mean, Duran Duran, love them or hate them. They, there's no question about their influence. That's a thing, I, I would no. think. Um, also, I'm very surprised that he's not in, uh, only because, again, I think of when you think of the 80s, to me, this guy is high on the list, George Michael. Another good point. Although George Michael is certainly on the,
4: nah, I was going to say, you know, he's certainly on the pop end of things, but that really doesn't matter these days. All those genres are broken down. Um, a very good point. He, um, he may be another one of those people who either a, didn't want to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, or more likely he just doesn't have the, um, the supporters that will get him on the ballot.
0: All right. So we've talked about, uh, since before Judas Priest, Motorhead, both, what you said, what about Iron Maiden? That is another goofy one. Um, <laughs> how, how can they not
4: be? uh they continue to be one of the biggest metal bands in the world they're still performing in fact i got a video from them today of uh, them doing aces high in in uh, in isolation uh for 15 16 years they've missed out of the nominations why is that that does not make any sense whatsoever
0: half the time i think that the folks in the rock and roll hall of fame just like to keep one or two bands on the outs for no good reason just to keep us talking like they did with oh, Rush yeah, for a while. I, I have to,
4: it's a marketing keep, thing. Yeah, they'll keep nominating Shaka Khan, but nobody will mention Iron Maiden.
0: Yeah. Okay, another one that I look at and I go, all right, I I, I think this is synonymous with the 80s. I'm not sure how you don't put this duo in, Eurythmics.
4: They're not in the world. Jeez. You know, I I, I don't keep tabs on this sort of thing, but I just assume that they were in there. Uh, You know, again, you know, Annie Lennox and Dave Stewart, hugely influential, multi-format in terms of radio, in terms of their appeal, um, groundbreaking videos, sold tons of records, uh, may help make MTV what they were. I don't get it.
0: LL Cool J.
4: Uh, you know what? I, I'm i going to abstain on this one simply because I'm tired of him. <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> he, right. he shows up everywhere. He's always he the host of, of some award show. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I, okay, put it this way. I don't know enough about his career beyond rock the bells and mama said knock you out to really care
0: all right so here's their top five and we're short on time unfortunately i did this backwards i should have probably gone from one down i went from 20 up but anyway here's the top five which of these five and you can have up to five you can have one you can have none you can have five which of these absolutely unquestionably without doubt should be put into the rock and roll hall of fame kate bush the pixies new order sonic youth the smiths Ooh. those are my five choices huh those are your five you can have zero or you can have five or anything in between the smiths sonic youth the new order the pixies and kate bush
4: well because we're talking about an american american sensibilities here i would go with the pixies they would they would have the best chance of those five although i believe all five should be in
0: the rock hall it's, um, I mean, I suspect that what happens is with these things, eventually everybody, you know, all these people will eventually get in. Um, I don't know. I mean, I would have thought that many of the voters by now, Alan, would have been children of the 80s who would have been in high school during this time. And that would have led to them being in. But hey, there you go. There's some names on there that uh, look. they even surprised Alan Cross, Canada's leading music guy. So there you go. He had to look up a couple of these. Because he was in such disbelief. So there you go, uh, Alan. Listen, we always appreciate having you on the show. We love talking to music, music with you. Thanks for taking a few minutes today. You, you bet. Anytime.
1: The Scott Radley Show weekday evenings from six to eight on nine hundred CHML.
0: The Scott Radley Show Podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.
3: For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does.